I started this podcast series, I said that if no one ever hears these recordings, I will still consider it to have been worthwhile, because it affords me a useful opportunity to organize my thoughts on consciousness. Well, at least a handful of people are listening, as it turns out, and I appreciate it. The first stage of building an audience is still underway. Perhaps that is where the project will remain in perpetuity, but I dare to aspire that it will in time advance to further stages. I have received some encouraging feedback and some credible criticism of my ideas. I envision a second stage of establishing an audience that reaches well into the field of consciousness thinkers such that I can begin to gain productive collegiate relationships. This would have the potential to become a parallel series of discussion episodes in which I trade and compare ideas with other scientists and philosophers who think deeply about the problem of consciousness and its implications. The best way to achieve that is if I have thousands of listeners. If you've been listening to these episodes up until now and you have found them engaging, I could really use your help to advance the podcast over time to that second stage. If you listen on YouTube, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or whatever service you prefer. And I ask that you share the podcast with others you know that might find it interesting. On my own, my reach is not that deep. But with an extended network that you could help me build, it could get very deep indeed, given a bit of time. I told you it would not exactly be a linear process, and it hasn't been. But I hope you have found it capable of following anyway. We have now arrived at episode 7 of the podcast. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, I hope you will go back and do so. In the third episode, I made an argument for why I think consciousness must serve a function. This implies that the kind of subjective experiences we have are honed by evolutionary processes. Here, I will discuss how that might have occurred. High degrees of ordered complexity are an exception, not a rule in the universe. The evolution of neural structures composed of increasingly complex networks of neurons in certain species of the animal kingdom stumbled upon the phenomenon of consciousness. What were the first qualia experienced by our earliest conscious ancestors? They could have been like anything. The smell of cut grass, or the sharp sting of a paper cut, a field of flashing lights, or a low bassy rhythm. More likely they were something vague, something tenuous, non-specific, and unlike any reportable human experience. Even modern humans struggle to explain their feelings and sensations to themselves and others. The neural substrate from which the very first qualia emerged had itself been naturally selected for its utility in bringing about adaptive behaviors. The qualia arose by chance, so in any case, the first qualia were in all likelihood epiphenomenal. They were an emergent property of a neural substrate which had incidentally produced the necessary conditions for their existence. Consider the first conscious animals. These creatures would have been descended from neuronally complex recent ancestors, featuring rapid communication among networked neurons. They would have been the beneficiaries of a behavioral repertoire that fitted them well to their environment. The rapid and complex neuronal arrangements which they had inherited would have resulted from generations of natural selection pressures, expanding sensory processing, and motor capabilities. They may have also had implicit cognitive capabilities due to algorithmic neural processing, which would enable flexibility in behavioral responses to varying contexts and stimuli. At some point, under just the right conditions, when high-frequency activities formed an appropriate structure, the first of the qualia emerged. 
a point of view had come into being if only for one brief moment. In accordance with the TICL framework, this would require a highly integrated system of some size within which a differentiated group of neuronal elements became a subsystem having some appreciable quality from the point of view of the system. But the first qualia probably had no bearing upon the survival or reproduction of the organisms which beheld them. In all likelihood, these qualia would have borne no relation to the functional modality which had given rise to them. If they arose from an optic sensory system, they nevertheless would not incidentally have created a visual image. If they arose from an auditory sensory system, they would not incidentally have created a sound. Neuronal structures interacting among themselves would have produced a subjective representation of some kind, but they had not evolved for the production of such a representation. The first qualia need not have provided a service to their organism. I propose that the earliest subjective experiences were arbitrary epiphenomena arising by chance from a substrate which had evolved to exhibit complex, high-speed interactions mediating between sensory inputs and behavioral outputs. In accordance with the current theories of consciousness, including the TICL, the first qualia would likely have arisen from sufficiently integrated and differentiated neuronal activities, such as those that eventually evolved to take place among mammalian thalamocortical networks. It is reasonable to postulate that faster and more complex integrated neuronal networks would have given an advantage to our distant ancestors. This would be true whether consciousness was present or not. In the competition for fitness, the first conscious species would have continued to evolve a larger and more integrated central nervous system so long as natural selection favored them doing so. The particular characteristics of the qualia attendant on that system would depend on the arrangement of their neural substrate. As the animals multiplied, the character of their qualia would have diversified, by mere chance in accordance with the arrangements of relevant neuronal circuits. The neuronal circuit activities underlying specific modalities would be expected to produce a range of conceptually related qualia if similar neural arrangements produce similar qualia. Furthermore, it is reasonable to postulate that neuronal systems would have evolved alongside those forming qualia and would have served to modulate and change the underlying neuronal activities. When this occurred, the emergent qualia from those neuronal activities would change in character. This would be the case whether or not the qualia were epiphenomenal. In the earliest conscious animals, these qualitative changes might have been arbitrary. But, if certain of those qualia afforded their organism an adaptive advantage by improving goal-directed behaviors, they would have been favored by natural selection. Using the term devised by Stephen Jay Gould and Elizabeth Irba, the qualia could have become accepted for a new function for which they were not initially adaptive. How could epiphenomenal subjective experiences gain purchase on the objective behaviors of the organism and thereby cease to be epiphenomenal? Let's consider how an ancestral conscious animal might have arose with this capacity. If, for the sake of illustration, the animal had only a single, sufficiently integrated neural modality to work with, it might experience a single phenomenal feature, say, brightness. Subtle changes in the underlying neuronal activities which give rise to it might affect the degree of brightness. The emergent consciousness would have no means of changing its own experience and no intrinsic preference for a given brightness over any other and it would not necessarily have the temporal continuity to observe the dynamics occurring in its subjective brightness. 
So let's give the conscious system a sense of continuity, a basic working memory that provides it with a sense that the brightness is either going down, going up, or staying the same. Further, suppose a neuronal arrangement could, by chance, produce a causal structure wherein motor functions could be influenced, directly or indirectly, by the degree of brightness experienced from the point of view of the system, not only by the neural systems from which the brightness emerges. Then and only then consciousness would be functional. Crucially, suppose that neuronal activities could evolve to produce a sense of value in the experience of brightness, a preference. A subjective point of view having a sense of continuity, a preference for certain qualia, and the capability to tinker with those qualia could pursue a higher degree of pleasant brightness, or a lower degree of unpleasant brightness, as the case may be. At minimum, this exemplary consciousness would be composed of nothing more than a degree of brightness, a preference for more, less, or the same degree of brightness, a capacity to alter that degree, and an implicit understanding of which way the degree of brightness is changing at a given moment. The qualitative preferences which best fit the survival and productivity of the organism would be selected by nature over the preferences of its competitors. Note that it would not matter what kind of neural system had given rise to brightness, whether visual or olfactory or auditory or anything else, nor would it matter what the consciously controlled behaviors were actually doing in the material world. They could be moving arms or tentacles or vocal cords or cilia. They could be driving frontal network behaviors related to attention or learning. The only thing that would matter is whether the consciously mediated activities ultimately resulted in better outcomes for the organism. I am proposing three minimal developments that would have been necessary for the evolution of functional human consciousness from an epiphenomenal conscious precursor. These are one, the capacity for consciousness to directly or indirectly modify behavior. Two, the establishment of subjectively preferential qualia. And three, the capacity for consciousness to represent dynamics, at least over some short time period. I have argued that human consciousness is functional, and I accept that the human species arose entirely by natural processes of evolution. Moreover, human consciousness is an emergent property of a neural substrate, composed of meanings derived from specific arrangements of that neural substrate. Those meanings are not arbitrary, and I suggest that they must contain a capacity for causal power in the objective world above and beyond the capacity of the summed neural substrate constituents from which they emerge. The mechanism for how emergent meanings leverage causal power upon the activities of their neural substrate is, at least in principle, empirically discoverable. With regard to preferential qualia, there is no doubt that such things exist. Over time, with these three developments in place, conceptual modalities arising from different neuronal systems would combine with additional behavioral outputs to produce a complex functional consciousness. With these three developments established, natural selection would favor those of the organisms whose preferences are best matched to adaptive behaviors. Daniel Dennett might refer to these developments as cranes, having arisen from mindless Darwinian processes, but having the capacity to open up new areas in evolutionary design space. By means of this refinement, consciousness would no longer be epiphenomenal. I propose that by this means, the specific kinds of qualia we are familiar with were sculpted by evolution across countless generations. The qualia were no more shaped by the evolution of neuronal circuitry than the neuronal circuits were shaped by the qualia. If this is correct, 
then modern human phenomenal consciousness results indirectly from generations of feedback between adaptive behaviors and the neural structures from which qualia emerge. In simple non-conscious organisms, the lives of which are enriched by a dearth of decisions and alternative procedures to undertake, a functional conscious mind is entirely unhelpful. If we consider for a moment the idea that a tree or a lichen had a point of view from which to regard the goings-on of its existence, it is quite difficult to imagine what would be occurring in the subject. The old hickory tree might as well let its mind wander into dreamland, as it's hard to see that suffering the hardships of its long, dull winters or the glories of its spreading leaves in the springtime wind would in either case present any behavioral opportunities, or for that matter, threats that it could outwit or avoid. The repertoire of activities such an organism can undertake are limited essentially to its cellular chemistry. And beyond the fact that consciousness would apparently not be of utility for such an organism, the plant lacks any kind of brain-like architecture that might plausibly enable conscious experiences. There are simple animals, our more distant relatives, which get by on a very limited set of behaviors, reflex-like responses, such as those that occur in the absence of conscious control in humans. Reflexes such as the one that causes us to instantly withdraw our hand from a hot surface are mediated at the level of the spinal cord. This suggests that simple, reflex-like responses, if that is all that makes up an organism's behaviors, would not be benefited or hindered by the organism having a mind. But it seems likely that complex decisions to be made given novel situations might benefit from whatever the mind is. Previous experiences in the form of episodic and procedural memories, as well as intelligence and the complex of ongoing pieces of sensory and conceptual information, can all be brought to bear within a unified mind such as humans are equipped with. The nature of a simple organism which lacks functional consciousness is a sort of computer. Genetically built-in algorithms are altered, as shown by memory researchers like Eric Kandel, so that a kind of learning can take place in the algorithms over some period of time. But this is understood to occur at a molecular level, and no call for conscious alterations is implied by such learning. By contrast, the nature of a functionally conscious organism is to pursue preferable qualia and to avoid those that are unpleasant. With regard to evolved human consciousness, the relationship between color and light is entirely fabricated from neural structures arising from the visual system, having tuned their arrangements to produce those qualia. This is likewise true for all of the senses and experiences that we are capable of having. It is analogous to Plato's allegory of the cave, with each individual conscious being existing in its own cave. The shadows playing on the wall of the cave, just as the colors of objects in our environment, are meaningful and provide exploitable information, but are nevertheless not the real material things. I am not claiming that the shadows do not exist. Of course they do, but they are not the things we might erringly assume them to be. The thing seen is not really the thing, but a correlation between them is useful for functioning in the environment. While it is certain that the conscious phenomenon truly exists, this line of reasoning implies that even sophisticated conscious content, such as that experienced by human beings, is entirely illusory. Of course it is. Just because we can explain why the color red, arising from the electromagnetic waves of a certain range of wavelengths, differs from the color blue, does not provide an explanation for the way they appear to us subjectively. Nor must those electromagnetic waves be present in order to experience the color, as evidenced by their presence in dreams.
To review, I propose that human consciousness could have evolved by means of a progression from epiphenomenal consciousness to consciousness gaining a measure of influence on behavioral functions to phenomenal consciousness with appropriate meaningful representations. Over the course of generations, natural selection could have refined the qualia by favoring the neural arrangements from which the most adaptive representations emerge. Apparently, the most adaptive situation availed along the human lineage is a consciousness which presents as a rapid, unitary composition of meaningful representations with contrasts among sensory and cognitive features, continuity across time, and emotional saliency to threats and opportunities. This explains the hallucination of objects in cloud formations and ink blots. Perhaps in our evolution, false positives extracted from the noise of sensory activity were favorable to false negatives. Moreover, visual illusions such as the Necker cube or conditions of ocular dominance suggest that a unified, meaningful composition is favorable to an uncertain but more accurate one. Are you still listening? If you are, then I could really use your help to extend the reach of the podcast. The best thing you can do to support the hard problem is to share it with others. Thanks again for being there.